from the investor perspective, if you think about just the access to capital in the last certainly five years until recently, it's been so abundant that I think there, there's been a supply and demand imbalance in software land in a lot of categories. And by virtue of that, with unlimited access to you know very cheap capital, you do have a lot of companies that haven't needed to learn how to sell because they can just jam things in the top of the funnel. And even with a par win rate in, just compared to historical levels, they've still been able to grow and grow nicely. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Win Rate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Matt Melamuka. And Matt is one of my guests on this episode of the Win Rate Podcast. Matt Melamuka is co-founder and managing partner at Peakspan Capital. And my other guests today for this really interesting conversation about sales effectiveness include James Isselag, James is CEO of Cognizant, and Kyle Williams, who's a frequent contributor here on the WinRate Podcast. And he is the founder and CEO of Brickstack. Now, before we jump into today's discussion, a couple items for you. A business. First, if you have any questions about B2B selling, sales effectiveness, or questions about how to increase your win rate that you'd like to have addressed by either me or any of my guests on my program, please submit your questions to me via email at winratepodcast at gmail.com, or you can DM me, Andy Paul, on LinkedIn. Love to hear your questions. Second, over 50,000 sellers and sales leaders subscribe to receive my weekly newsletter. Perhaps you should too. It's called Win Rate Wednesday. Each week, receive one actionable tip to accelerate your win rates and a bunch of other great sales advice as well. So to subscribe, just visit my website at andypaul.com. All right, if you're ready, let's jump into the discussion. Welcome, everyone, and welcome to my guests. James, why don't you lead off? Give us a few minutes about yourself and what you do. Sure, yeah. My, my name's uh, James Islay, so I'm CEO and uh, co-founder of a company called Cognizant. So we're a B2B data company. We, we specialize in providing premium contact data in uh, globally. We, we have a, about 70% of our business in Europe and about 30% of our business in North America. And yeah, we, we currently 500 people plus just raised the Series D and had a fantastic first half of the year. Yeah, you mentioned that before. Yeah, very exciting. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit. Matt? Thank you. It's my, my third tour of duty here at Indy. Yeah, first on this podcast. That's first on this one, true, true, true. Very true. The whole new era. Uh, but Matt Melanica, I'm a co-founder and managing partner of a growth equity firm called Peakspan Capital. We are about a, a $1.5 billion AUM business across three funds. We're solely focused on B2B software, solely focused on the growth stage of company development, looking for companies that are doing really strategic things in categories that we think have real staying power. And because B2B software is so big, we further silo the universe into themes or kind of sub-segments. And uh, as partners, you can lead no more than three. So we try to get really steep to these themes. So I lead sales tech among uh, two others, marketing tech and hospitality tech. Had the privilege of partnering with James and his team in mid-2019. So a great example of the types of businesses we're looking to partner with. So really happy to be here. Great. Great to see you as always. And then finally, Kyle, you actually are a repeat guest on the show. So uh, Kyle's a bit about to be back. Yeah. I'm Kyle Williams. I'm a... Uh... Sales leader that learned how to code. I was early Google Cloud sales, learned how to code along the way. Now I run a company called Brickstack. We help companies with really hard to identify ICP with go-to-market strategy and really dialing in on pointing at the market correctly. But I'm actually starting to incubate a product, which we might, well, it's in stealth at the moment, but I think at some point in the podcast, we might talk about that a little bit more. Executives who are building their personal brand and looking to go outbound. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, we can jump into that. So, James, we're going to start with you, though, is because show this is the Win Rate podcast. And 
the impetus for starting the show was certainly my experience talking with literally hundreds, if not thousands of leaders, corporate leaders, sales leaders, sellers, and sort of astounded by how little focus people have been putting on win rates. And it's sort of got to start with you as a CEO of a you know, high growth company. How focused are you on win rates in terms of a metric that has value to you in, in growing the company? Uh, yeah, kind of ex- extremely, like I said, extremely focused on it. It's just like, you know, Cognizant's evolved from a company that was really primarily servicing like an SMB customer in its early stages to like in the last couple of years, really having an SMB mid-market enterprise segmentation of customers. Like we've, we're just, we've like homegrown most of our sales team and they've really grown up servicing that SMB commercial business. And now we're taking some of those sellers and then getting them to do enterprise sales. So, so like there's a lot there in terms of like them learning to sell to enterprises. There's a lot for us as an organization to be able to teach our staff, our sales team to sell to enterprises. And so like, and then there's also at the same time, the changes in the economy is getting a lot harder to do outbound right now. I think that's a consistent trend. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, what we also seen is our inbound win rates have stayed, stayed, the, stayed the same. So it's very interesting now that, that we, I've got a more complex company. I, I can see where the challenges are coming in. Like I, I've recently made changes to the leadership and the sales team and gone back in and dived into the sales function deeply. I think I made a number of changes like implementing Medic like so we can kind of upskill and, and have a consistency in how we sell. And right now, I, like diving into the, the, like personally into the subject of multi-threading deals because and making sure we've got better tooling creating new tooling for our sales team so that they can really prepare for meetings better and multi-thread better. Because I think like that's where it's got harder for sure. And I think that our tooling and our training needs to be improved to get the, the same win rates we had in the easier economy. We need to engage more contacts. And again, I, I, I gave a talk about this earlier this week at a conference called Sasgrave. I think it's like the organization's responsibility to provide the tooling, provide the training to upgrade the salespeople. Like, we shouldn't expect we, we should in this economy expect win rates to be dropping like especially outbound enterprise sales unless we're actually investing in skills training tools to get to to do to have that uplift right in right. In, in for the well, there's, just, there's this general commentary that sort of runs through we've seen over the last six months or so which is that yeah necessarily win rates fall during a tough economy and that i have to say that's never been my experience is that your win rate is sort of independent of the economy. You're, you have a, a way of selling and you have a certain level of effectiveness that you've established. Now, you may have fewer opportunities you're working on, for sure. But those that you're actually working on, why would your win rates necessarily fall? I, I, I think they would fall if like, you had a low skill level. Like if it was very easy, like, if a year ago, like, like two years ago, a year ago, it would only take one decision maker to close a deal. And now it takes like five, but your team has only been single threaded. They would only ever mm-hmm. be, they got so used to speaking to a single contact that, and, and you never really like had a discipline in your system to get them to do like proper preparation to make sure that they were multi-threading deals properly. Now, if you had a great sales system that was built in tougher times and you had that inbuilt, then, um, then you'll probably see consistency mm-hmm. on the win, win rates. But like, I think what I am seeing in a lot of orgs that grew up during or essentially built their sales teams in easy times right. is that they're suffering. I've seen some really interesting things in the last, even just in the last couple of weeks. I'm seeing like 
a lot of organizations struggling and not upgrading their tooling. And they're almost having the reaction to actually just pull out of pull out of market, like give up an outbound. I'm seeing that in a couple of companies. Like they, especially like companies that have gone into like Europe. I'm seeing like quite a few US companies kind of retreating a little bit from the European market mm-hmm. instead of like investing more and investing in better tools, investing in better like like just upgrading their system, their systems and their processes around um, outbound or just sales in general. They they they're kind of looking at their win rates and going, okay, well the win rates are dropping and then taking that as a signal to like consolidate in the US for instance or or just to to focus on on inbound on more marketing dollars where win rates are, are pretty much consistent it's really interesting Andy I know you, you talk a lot about this too and I think from the investor perspective too if you think about just the the access to capital in the last certainly five years until recently, it's been so abundant that I think there, there's been a supply and demand imbalance in, in software land in a lot of categories. And by virtue of that, with unlimited access to you know very cheap capital, you do have a lot of companies that that haven't needed to learn how to sell because they can just top, they like jam things in the top of the funnel. And even with a par win rate in as compared to historical levels, they've still been able to grow and grow nicely, right? And so it's actually really it's really interesting. And I think, James, the other thing, too, that I think you all did really brilliantly in, in scaling the business was not every company has this opportunity, but started and founded in the UK, where you identified just a massive greenfield opportunity and really scaled nicely, developed the product, kind of figured out product market fit in a region with less competitive density and intensity, and then got went to the US when it was right, when the time was right and you were ready for it. And you were getting pulled there and all those things, right? I think a lot of vendors get, whether it's to your point, going to Europe or going to the US, they just kind of do so because they think they need to do so and then end up burning a lot of money and the time doing it. But yeah. A little bit vice versa. A lot of UK companies go to the US and then fail and then just give up, right? But like you, you see both, you've, seen, like it's interesting to see both things happening now. Like now I'm seeing the inverse, like US companies going into Europe like not being successful because they get the, they take the wrong approach to the European market, European markets, because it's a S, because <laughs> mm. there's multiple of them and they're all different. And then they treat it like the US market. And then I'm seeing now, like like in, in some cases, high profile company names kind of giving up and consolidating their sales back in the US, which I like, I, I think is a mistake. Yeah. Why would the win rates go down? Shouldn't they be consistent? Maybe there's fewer. Because one thing I'm seeing is, say you have some target that we need to have 100 opportunities generated in a certain time frame and companies have decreased, say, paid spend or they've stopped investing in certain areas or they're finding that certain inbound has decreased. And so they increase the amount of activity coming from, say, SDRs where maybe the win rate for the SDR driven opportunities was the same, but it now makes up a bigger portion of their pipeline. So your overall win rate is going down where at a lead source level, it's relatively stable. I'm seeing that pattern happen quite a bit. Yeah, you and I saw that at one company we spoke with, Kyle, is that they certainly weren't paying attention, I think, to the message that the win rates were sending, which was, hey, we're really doing a great job and winning at a pretty healthy rate. It wasn't as like 40% rate on our outbound developed opportunities, but our inbound, we're winning like at 20%. But suddenly the flood of inbound, they got really good at generating inbound leads. So it's like, well, hey, let's just do more of this low win rate stuff. And they completely ignored the really higher dollar value, high win rate opportunities. Rather than grow that part of their business, as I said, they sort of got lazy. 
The other thing, that just a broad trend that from my perspective and vantage point that, that we're seeing a lot, which I think is the, uh, definitely resonant with your perspective and kind of mantra, Andy, um, and has been for a while, is just this move to, if you think about the last really five to, to 10 years in sales tech, there's been such a flood of new startups and new kind of emerging categories and subcategories like the sales tech stack has has burgeoned to a massive degree. There's been tons of investment dollars. And I think by virtue of all of that, there has been a kind of an inherent like shift in 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 the world of sales strategy to be kind of sales centric, like pushing a strategy that the company proactively thinks is the right one versus listening to the buyer and actually pursuing a more buyer-centric approach and, and trying to enable that buyer to make the right decision. And so I think that's part of the reason when rates aren't as low as they are too, because, and we see it in, in the investing world too, where there's a lot of this kind of one-size-fits-all growth and all-cost model. And that's really because that's what the investment firm needs, not like what the company needs, right? So there's an interesting parallel there with buyer-centricity and, and kind of, you know, seller-centric motions. And so I see, the, the companies that we're seeing doing the best really are really understanding their ICP tier earlier uh, question and comment, like their win rates and good markets and bad are very consistently high. And they're listening to their buyers. Like they're really letting the buyer um, kind of help drive and, and navigate the process. And they're really enabling and supporting the buyer to make the right decision. Yeah. And you, I mean, we certainly saw this you know, valid approach validated, if you will, maybe the wrong word, because there's been plenty of research about this. But more recently with the Gartner report that came out, uh, by the time this airs, it'll be a couple months. And where they showed is, hey, here are the nine ranked in order of importance. Here are the nine most important factors that influence the selection of a vendor by the buyer. And yes, yeah, seven of the nine were, well, first of all, <laughs> I like to show this chart that I created to sellers and I'll say, okay, tell me what's missing from this list of the nine most important things that influence a decision. And it's like, oh, product isn't there. Oh, price isn't there. And it's seven of the nine are very specifically experience-based, right? The yeah. way the buyer experiences the seller. And it seems like that's a message that's really hard to, to take hold, right? Because it seems like our whole training infrastructure is lined up to sort of emphasize selling a product. But what the Gartner data really shows is that, and this is this you know, split that I've seen for forever in sales, is sellers are selling a product, buyers are selecting a vendor. And they're on two different paths. And it's like, until we can reconcile that, it seems like we're always going to be struggling with this issue of win rates. Well, and I, th I think, Andy, too, just it, 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 well, part of the reason, and curious for your perspective, because I've seen you work your magic, and this is why you're so so unique and, and powerful. It's harder, it's easier to train how to sell a product, right, than it is to kind of train and learn and communicate a more nuanced approach, mm -hmm. right? And so like that, I think that's probably the reality is it's harder to do that. And again, I've seen you navigate that really well, um, but it's hard, right? It's much easier and much more straightforward to to teach a process and a structure and like command of something that you're in total control of. Yeah, but are you, right? That's, I think, that's really... In total control, it doesn't mean people like it on the other end. Yeah. Uh, you're in total control of it, but, but yeah, I think it's harder and curious for others' perspectives, of course. And now, a word from Cognizant. Picture this, your revenue team armed with accurate B2B contact data that leaves missed opportunities and unreachable prospects in the past. Look no further than Cognizm, the B2B contact data provider that stands out with unwavering focus on data quality and coverage. Cognizm's US data set alone offers two times more cell phone numbers than any other provider on the market. 
And it gets even better. 7 million human verified cell phone numbers backed by a 98% accuracy rate deliver precision like you've never seen before. And if international business growth is on the horizon, Cognizant offers the most complete GDPR compliant data in Europe, making your expansion dreams more attainable than ever. Customers like Drift have already experienced the power of Cognizant. In just 30 days, they proved ROI and now book 70% of their outbound meetings using Cognizant's cell phone data. But don't take our word for it. Get a free data sample and test the quality for yourself. Head over to Cognizant.com slash data sample to get your free data sample today. That's Cognizant.com slash data sample. Yeah, James, what do you think about that? Yeah, in terms of the, those criteria, one of the problems that we're tackling internally is just that knowledge that the, 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 this, our sales staff have of the product itself, right? It's like teaching our sales team like about the competition, about the product, about guiding the customer through that experience. Like that's one of the big things that we're tackling right now. Like again, it's about their product knowledge and their education on it. Like that's something that we we found just needs to be upgraded, right? In terms of like the like our own training of our own sales team and sales staff. And and I, I think like again, it's maybe a case of that it it was all so easy for a long period of time that there was just so much money in the market. And I think again, it's just sales enablement, right? And ramping how we ramp reps and how well we train them and the tooling that we give them that all needs to get to the next level, which again fits into that the, the Ghana study that you talked about. Yeah. And so what are? I'm sorry. Well, go ahead, man. I was just going to ask James. What, what are because uh, some of it too, obviously, is is an ability to think on your feet and and you know react to something versus again just kind of shove a process down somebody's throat. What are some of the criteria or like characteristics? that you all look for in, in potential sellers. Um, curious, cause you've, you've done an amazing job and just to toot your own horn, cause you probably won't that then the sales productivity, consistency and, and distribution across the rep base that you guys have posted since, since I've been partnering with you for, for years is remarkable. And so you've built this amazing engine and, but again, you've been consistently just really good at finding talent. What are some of the things that, that you all or your sales leaders are looking for in, in the folks that you bring on board? I think like we, we started off in the SMB and then we've gone up market to like mid market and enterprise. So like for most of our journey so far, we've been very good at bringing graduates, training them to a good degree for the SMB market and then doing volume sales. Right. And then what we've really found as we've moved into mid market and enterprise is that we've had to build a better sales enablement, right? Better, better more robust training and more robust and better tools. And so like, that's the phase of learning that we're going through now is that upgrading. Like, and I think that, yeah, that, that's a big learning for us right now and where we're putting a lot of investment is just more training, more multi-threading of deals, better tooling, better assets for the sales team in terms of, yeah, training, competitive intelligence, understanding of product assets, like all, like that's a big shift and a big upgrade. And I think that a lot of companies on that growth journey, that's a point you can stall in. Stall, if you're kind of taking salespeople that have sold into SMB and then just expect them to be able to navigate those more complex enterprise upper mid-market deals or just hiring the wrong people that don't have that experience. So James, and yeah, this is a question for everybody, but we'll start with you. Is So what's, what's a good win rate? 
What should the expectation be as a seller, as you're embarking on your career and you're building your expertise and your experience base? What's a good win rate? What should, what should your personal expectation be? I guess on our side, I guess what are you, what are you benchmarking against, right? Like benchmarking against your best reps, right? Like, like what are your best reps doing versus your, your mid-tier reps? That's one way to look at it. What does your experience say, seeing that you've looked at this topic a lot? Like I've only looked at it really in my organization. Is it is the question benchmarking or is there an objective standard? Yeah, I know I look at the differences across, say, the different types of deal that are coming in. In terms of like, is it inbound, outbound? What type of size company is it? And then I'm looking at that across reps. And then also like bearing in mind what stage we're at in terms of the training, the type of market. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to weigh all those things, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I've, so talked again, lots and lots of people about this. Is what I found is that very consistently, those sellers who are, use this generic term, top sellers, Simply, they, they win more than they lose. And so over 50%. Yeah, 50.1 you know, okay. as, as a minimum. Is, and I think that is, not to, not to ask a leading question, which I just did, but I think that is a standard that sellers should aspire to. Just that I'm in this business and just starting at the top, let alone we can get later, we can get all the factors that can influence that. But I would sh- want my sellers as a manager, and I did, is say, look, your goal is to win more than you lose. Matt. And, 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 and I'm sure others have a perspective too. I, I, I think what's interesting about your allusion to benchmarks, James, is I think the, the benchmarks, the quote unquote standards have been have been pulled down recently because I do think there's a lot of it. Just the kind of sales training and et cetera, just kind of things that people think they know in their gut, especially younger folks who, who are just kind of new, newer to the game. And they think like these 25, 30% win rates are like best in class. And, and they think that the, the reality is too, salespeople are some of the most kind of logically motivated folks on the planet. And so if you tell them that 30% is best in class, like that's where the, the bell curve will kind of revolve around. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's just interesting. I, I agree with you, Andy. And I, I've seen some of the most successful companies I've worked with, and it varies by industry category and, and stage and all of that stuff, of course. But we worked with a business at our prior firm called Clarendale, and one of our operating advisors, Pete Daffern, was CEO there. They were doing mobile banking software um, before a lot of these banks had mobile software, right? And so like, right. they were actually like, bringing a lot of these banks online for the first time, and uh, they've really narrowed down their ICP. I think at one point they had a list of maybe 80 banks in the U.S. that they were going after, and they went six quarters without losing a deal. They landed 18 of the top, I think, 25 banks in the country. And so that's that's unrealistic in some markets, but it's a great example of they knew what they were going after, and it was a necessarily narrow should work it right a little bit, but they nailed it. So, well, and I think that's a point. And Kyle, you and I have talked about this a bunch. Is that one thing that distinguishes sellers that are selling at high win rates is that they're really good at making choices in their selling. Right, who I'm going to sell to, who I'm going to invest my time in, who I'm going to disqualify. Anyway, if you're going to yeah. win. More than you lose, you have to play where you can win and you have to make those right. choices about, am I even going to play this game or save this one for later or they're just not the right fit for what we're doing, which to your point, Matt, you have to really know, not just as a rep to what James was saying about having the product knowledge about you have to be able to make that determination really early on to say, is this where I'm going to spend my time and resource, but as an organization as well to understand where we're pointed 
And sometimes to make that scary choice to say, it's this narrow slice at the moment, I think one thing I see a lot is organizations that are making the switch from primarily inbound to expanding the outbound. Mm -hmm. You take all your inbound, you look at your win rates, you say, we win here, we lose here. But there's a hidden dimension, which is we win when these factors are true and they come to us. And so what is that hidden and they came to us dimension that often mm-hmm. exists? Because if you just look at, okay, there are this many employees and they have this much revenue, then the TAM feels massive. And sometimes it is making that hard choice to be able to play where you can win. But doesn't one of the difficulties, I was going to say, isn't one of the difficulties, though, in that environment that we see and that causes or this continuous or converging on lower win rates is this pressure to think, oh, my gosh, we've been in this mode where pipeline is king, right? We need to have all these activities. And if we don't have a certain amount of pipeline, we're going to feel nervous and anxious because you're assuming we're only going to close a really small percentage of them. But it's making that transition to say, well, now we're going to change things. We're going to start winning a much higher fraction. But then you have sales leaders that are sort of panicking because, oh, but what about pipeline? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a bit about the analysis you do, right? How deep like as as orgs, right? Like as, especially we're we're like a Series D funded company, right? We've we're not that old. We're about six years old as a, as an organization, so we're pretty young. And again, like we were getting better and better at doing the that analysis, right? Of, of and then yeah, like we've gone from mostly serving SMB and it being a volume game to then like having richer, more complex pipeline, and then just. Yeah, like I think that's a part of like getting to that next level as an organization, right? Of then, yeah, being able to qualify opportunities better, being able to yeah get out get these opportunities out of the pipeline that are probably not going to close versus just serving them on mass. It's a good standard to set, right? To say, okay, yeah, your rep should be having a fifty percent win rate, and then driving towards that. I don't think we've like like if, if I look, read a lot of the materials on LinkedIn or the the books about sales, I don't see like haven't really heard like that focus before or, or somebody saying you should be looking to get a 50% win right you should be looking to qualify out all the garbage that's in your pipeline and one of the metrics to show that you're doing that right is a 50% win rate right versus yeah. you know like your win rate is a metric that just comes out at the end of the pipeline right at the end of the, right your rep is going to hit quota and then that's your focus right rep hits quota is the focus win rate is kind of a, one of those byproducts of of the system that you built right I think that's it. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing to focus in on of like, okay, yeah, actually, a 50% win rate should be one of the things that we're, we're optimizing for. It changes Jane, things. I think that's, it's just really interesting. I think that's part of the issue that I was scratching at too, which is the, a lot of the, uh, you know, stuff and, and, you know, folks with the megaphone might be like misleading, uh, to some degree, like a lot of the data out there that's benchmarking and folks that are, um, uh, certainly influenced and biased by the, the market environment the last five, six years. But one of the things too, James, that again, to give you all credit, then I think you've done really brilliantly is really aligning your kind of go-to-market focus and motion with where you can win from a product's perspective, your data business, refracting your data set and making sure your sellers are enabled with uh, the tools and the kind of product value prop, if you will, to give them the best chance at success. And so I, I think that's been another great thing that you guys have done attacking Greenfield where it is, but also, again, aligning kind of product and innovation cycles with where you're going after and what the, you know, regional specific nuances or requirements might be too. So again, you guys have crushed that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, the win rate thing is, you know, you talk about quota and as people know, I'm sort of a skeptic about the value of quota these days, but yeah, is win rate something that should be included in compensation plans? 
I, I think the organization has a responsibility to dive into. For me, it's like, what's, what's the organization's responsibility and what's the rep's responsibility, right? And I, I don't really, like, I'm getting quite strongly passionate about this. In terms of you, if you if the organization is is the organization's job to optimize and build great systems around the pipeline, right, and then to give the reps great training, great tool sets, great materials, right, and then there should be no excuses, right. So I guess like win rate should be something that the organization should be optimizing for to ensure that the rep doesn't have isn't wasting their time on on weak opportunities. Well, I actually think, interestingly, in, in, from my perspective, the ability to know where to spend your time and prioritize it accordingly, i.e. where you can win, that next, that's like next level thinking in my, from my perspective. And it's, it's similar to being able to think on your feet and navigate a more complex, sophisticated sales cycle. And so in, in my view, that's actually probably, a, I would guess it's tightly correlated. The folks that can do that well are probably the folks that A, have a good win rate, but are also B, just could perform better even without the enablement tools around them because they're just they're the types of folks that can figure it out. And so it's, it's interesting. I, I would guess that it's, it's actually pretty correlated with it because that's hard. It's hard to, to do that. And it's hard. It's not necessarily a, a natural skill of a lot of folks too. And so it's hard to teach that, I think too, um, especially if you're a, a junior seller. Managers that are willing to show people how it's done. Right, we started going through this era. You've referenced the format where it's all about activity levels and less about mentoring and coaching and then showing how it's done. And yeah, one of my favorite examples of why this is so problematic when we see this these days is like on LinkedIn. Yeah, not that there's always good advice there, but several prominent voices saying, "Look, hey, 2023 is going to be tough, so you got to give your best leads to your best salespeople." And it's like, well, why? right? So you're just going to keep your two people that are doing well, you're just going to continue to feed them deals and you're not going to teach the rest of your team how to get better and how to improve and how to work these deals so you can grow your bench and grow your strength as an organization. There's stuff coming from leadership that I think is much of an issue in sort of dictating that's saying, man, I think it's kind of lazy behavior is, yeah, yeah. it's our best leads to our best people instead of saying, no, how do I help all my people become the it's best? It's like letting, letting LeBron James take the, the open layup. And now, a message from Closed. An often overlooked way to improve your win rate is to identify and close win-back opportunities. After conducting tens of thousands of buyer interviews, Closed has found that 10% of closed-loss deals have the potential to be won back at some point in the future. Now, identifying these win-back opportunities early and knowing when and how to follow up could be worth millions. Closed recently helped one of their customers identify and win a $500,000 win-back opportunity within days of it being marked as closed lost. Closed automatically reached out to perform a win-loss interview when the deal was marked closed lost in the CRM. And the buyer said, well, actually, we're still interested and we're ready to sign the contract. Closed is finding win-back deals on a daily basis for their clients. How about for you? To help you get started receiving the value of consistent, direct, candid feedback from your buyers, Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. 
So to claim your gift, visit winlosstoolkit.com. That's winlosstoolkit.com. And now a message from Alego. Are you struggling to make your sales team more efficient and improve time to productivity? With Alego's modern revenue enablement platform, marketing sales and enablement teams get on the same page for continuous improvement. So break through all the noise and deliver the buying experiences that your buyers today demand. Enable faster ramp times for your rep and more revenue for your business in less time. See how it all can work for you. Go to alego.com demo. That is alego.com demo. You know, there, there was a, a, one article on LinkedIn with um, one SaaS company provided its, its win rates per rep and then what they had seen over the last year. And they, I think the, the, the conclusion was, which a lot of people commented is what they saw, is that their best sellers were still selling at the same performance as they were during the good times, but their, their mid-tier, lower-tier reps, their performance had really dropped off. And what, what does that say? I think it goes back to, like, yeah, those high performers know how to sell. They know how to multi-thread. They know how to... And they haven't really taught those skills to the, the other layers, right? They haven't taught them how to multi-thread. They haven't... Maybe also there is a bit of like, yeah, they're routing the best leads to those people. So it's easier for them as well. But again, like, it's just, yeah, it's a warning sign because you're putting all your bets on a couple of people. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, what it should be telling you is that we need to do... We need to invest more now. And because like things are a bit tougher, we should be investing in more tools, more training, more materials. And then we should see that through the win rates of the whole group lifting higher, right? Like, so it's about digging deeper and not just waiting for the good times to come back. Well, just one comment on that. I I think also from my perspective, like the, just the um, proliferation and of the the SDR function broadly and just the inside sales model in the last 10 or 15 years, like speaking from a, like a board member perspective. I, I think there is, it starts at the foundation in terms of just lead quality too, and where to spend time, because I think most FDRs are probably compensated on a number of demos set, right? Mm. And then there's very little uh, put on the quality of those demos or how they progress through the pipeline. And so it, it does start at the foundational layer, I think too, where it's like just jamming stuff into the top of the pipeline and folks, if you incentivize the right behavior, or I know they have talked about like micro commissioning specific activities that you want folks to do. I think that could be, it's harder to do that, right? And so that's why it's it's harder to track that stuff. But I do think it, you could even start there at the very foundational level. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great idea with that micro commissioning. I mean, one of the reasons I like win rates is because I think this is the purest expression of the buyer's experience with you as a seller, right? Nothing speaks to it more than the win rate. And... So they have that vote. So yeah, understanding what the behaviors are, the skills are that need to be incorporated in order to create these better buying experiences. And if, yeah, if there's an idea with micro commissioning or something like that, that, that could be, I think that's really you know, a clever idea to look at because this is really, I think the issue that we're confronting is that it's not like we don't know what works <laughs> with We've had so much data that's come from it. We've had this Gartner study is just an example. There's been others I reference on the show. They've been done deep win-loss analyses, research out win-loss analyses that show that, hey, it's how the buyer experiences a seller. Products, a competitive product at competitive price is largely considered table stakes. So where I, that's the case, 
the decisions are made on the margins on these ways that the buyer's experience going with the seller, going through their process. Yeah, I, I, I guess like, well, one of the stats from a talk I gave you today, it'd be nice to discuss this. Like, So the average sales leader uh, and the average SDR is typically in tenure for like 18 months, right? Mm. So again, it having this all like built into the systems and not having it like in a leader that's teaching it, right? So, because because you're gonna, if you just think about those turnovers of staff, like like what, what I see again and again is just organizations that haven't made this systematic and then go through like these. I, I've seen that quite a bit now. These this kind of like like phases of performance, right? And then they see performance collapse, and so because it's a leadership team that have or a leader that put in a certain system, they've put certain like performance in place, and then when they leave. That the performance collapses versus the organizations actually made that systematic and you switch out the leader and everyone would still work to the same degree. Yeah. I, th- I think to, to that point too, sometimes it's oftentimes it's hard to tell, especially for a new sales leader or a new kind of motion, et cetera, standing up or building out the SDR effort. It, it's hard to tell how things are going because there's a lot of focus on the activity metrics. And I also think folks folks want to show that they're busy. And so like that's oftentimes I think why folks spend time on the wrong opportunities because they want to have stuff in their pipeline, right? Whether it's good or not. And again, yeah, if you're standing up you're standing up an effort for the first time, it, it, it are we looking at the right activity metrics? I guess is one of the interesting questions because I think we all agree that win rate is a great barometer. But Andy Curious, Andy Kyle, if, if James, if you guys have any kind of more less talked about earlier activity metrics that you all think are good indicators of we're spending time with our the right folks and I think some of it you can slice win rate by stage because some of the problem as you alluded to Matt is you spin up your SDR function and then you watch your stage zero acceptance rate plummet because we don't have a chance to win 50% much less progress 50% of the leads that are coming through the door some of the challenge or the reason I think for that is 10 years ago the SDR function was primarily a, a function of doing things at scale was a challenge and it was a feedback mechanism, right? If I reach out to 100 prospects, whether it's good or not, I'll get 20 replies. They might tell me who I got wrong or what my message was off and then you could improve. And so it became a game of who sends the most, gets the most feedback, improves the most, ultimately has the best targeting and messaging. And now you have to have it all pretty well dialed in. Otherwise, at best, you get two words, one word if they're not being nice back, you're not learning anything from the activity anymore. So the activity no longer gives you a feedback loop. The feedback has to come before you hit send on your outbound. So that's even qualitative things. Like one of the exercises I do is interview the top rep, not to ask them what campaign should we do or what targeting should we do, but what do you do to prepare for a first call? Because you're going to spend calories because that's valuable. And then what goes off in your head as you do that preparation? What patterns, how do you expect that call to go? And those are the heuristics, really, that you need to extract from the team. It's not necessarily a metric. The metric is going to be how well is our sales acceptance tracking? Are we putting the right things in the top of the funnel such that we're getting the response such that the folks we put in the first day tend to be accepted? But it starts with some of those heuristics, I think. Yeah, and you can, some of them may seem even a little soft, but you can quantify trust, right? Gartner, that was number one factor influencing vendor selection was trustworthiness. There's ways you can quantify that as you move through the process. Are you getting the answers to the questions that you need, right? In order to be able to really come up with a solution for the buyer and really understand what they're trying to accomplish. 
if you're not getting that information, chances are that you haven't earned the trust to be able to even ask the question or even ask it, but get the answer to it. And so while some of it may be fairly quantitative based like activity, in some cases, it may seem a little softer on the surface, but it's very tangible and measurable and has an impact on. And so you can create scorecards that enable you to sort of say, okay, yeah, have we achieved this level of trust that we need in order to proceed? That's what I'm building tooling around that right now, like specifically around that, because like, well, one of the things that diving into my own organization, Salesforce notes, et cetera, like is that preparation? Have we done that work to really learn their pain points? Have we spoken to enough contacts to really understand the organization before we go to the decision maker and have that conversation? Right. Like so that there's the, yeah, so we can build trust because trust is built through knowledge of the problems that they have. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. so again, it's, it's that change of having to work harder and learn more to get the sale closed than we've had to do for the last couple of years. Right. And, and as most SDRs and you and most salespeople, like they generally that there's a generation that have grown up in like a, a very, an easier period. Um, and so there's a, yeah, there's, there's, there's extra effort that needs to be put into this time. If you yeah. did, did you, and I don't know if you all have, I'm um, sorry to, to butt in, Andy, if you, you all know Amy Cuddy, she's a professor at that Harvard <laughs> Business School, and her whole thing is all about just body language and just what human beings react to. And she, it kind of boils it down to two things, which are her competence. Um, do I know what I'm talking about? And confidence, can I trust this person? And so it's it's really interesting. Like, there's a lot of, of kind of behavioral psychology that did behind all that. And so... But again, those are harder, a little bit harder to measure um, for what it's what it worth, Andy, and you'd be, you'd be happy to hear this. I think a lot of organizations, investment firms, um, you know, pursue kind of an outbound model, reaching out to companies, et cetera, will um, really kind of compensate and incentivize their, you know, the equivalent of their SDRs, like the associates, based on number of outreaches. We actually, at our firm, um, just the, the partners reach out, so we kind of flip that on its head. But we instead look at um, number of kind of uh, engagements that make it to a certain stage, mm-hmm. which for us is right around like issuance of a term sheet. And so for us, you can you, know, you could you could send ten emails in a year, you could send a hundred, and it did you know it, it doesn't matter. What matters is how many engagements are are progressing. And so it's part and parcel with what we're talking about, like spending time on the right opportunities. And uh, there's a real opportunity cost to that too, right? So you need to make sure you can execute when you get the chance. Well, that's precisely right. And yeah, if you're going to invest the time, you have to be able to, and the buyer's going to invest the time, then you have to be able to provide them a return on that investment of time. And that is, yeah, I'm going to help you make progress toward making your decision more effectively than the competition will. Big time. Yeah. I think like also just speaking to as a sales leader in our space, and one of the one of his big lessons, which then I took to Cognizant, was just getting his reps to believe what was possible, right? Like we had a lot of reps that had sold commercial deals, average ACV of 20, let's say like 20K a year to the SMB market. Mm-hmm. And then then getting them to do a seven-figure deal, like that was even possible, right? Like to change that mindset. And it's the same with like the win rates, right? Like if they got used to a certain win rate of 20%, like it's like, I should know you can get to a 50% win rate. It is possible, but they've never seen that. Like most of them have ever, they've never seen that win rate. But it, it's not like it, for them, it's like an impossible thing to believe. It's like it's Santa Claus or something, right? And yeah. so, like, there, it, I guess it's, it's Santa Claus it, yeah. real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's such a great point, though. Is and I, yeah, I remember back in 2020, 2021, 
people marveling. Oh my gosh, who could have thought that we could have closed hundred thousand dollar deals all remotely? And it's like, <laughs> shit, we were doing that 30 years ago and million dollar deals, right? It's just a matter of doing it and knowing that you can do it. Then to your point, James is like, well, of course we could do that, right? Let's do more of it. Let's do bigger deals. It's not the, it's not the medium. That's the barrier. It's us. Well, then the, that's back, the confidence and confidence point too, right? Be confident. Like we actually in historically in, in the couple of years ago, we sold a business to SAP and we're catching up with the corp dev kind of guy who did the acquisition and you always want it to go well. So they're like, right. the, you know, but you don't want it to go too well. So, so you're like, oh man, we really left a lot on the table there. And within, I think it was within three quarters, man, seven X the size of the business because they walked into the room where we were, Oliver Twist saying, please, sir, can I have some more for the 90K deal? And they were SAP and they walked in and said, it's 3 billion now. And they said, all right. And so it's, it's interesting, right? Like that swagger, then confidence, and it definitely matters. We see it a lot. Well, and I, I think, and Jen, uh, James, not a comment on what you've done because you're doing great. But yeah, I deal with so many companies say, we're going to you know earn our spurs selling small business and then we're going to migrate up to enterprise and so on. It's, Startups I worked at, we sold stuff that could only be sold to large enterprise. So if you want to, my deal is if you, hey, if you want to sell to big companies, go sell to big companies, right? There's nothing you're really going to learn selling to small companies that's going to teach you how to sell to big companies. And I think it's some, yeah, a different strategy companies can use to, to grow effectively is, yeah, go big. Also, name one company that has effectively straddled both motions that's a big company now. I don't think there's any, maybe you could argue Google, but there's really no... Examples. That's what I do every time. Like show point to me, the company that's effectively navigated both paths because it's just very different. Yeah, absolutely. All right, gentlemen, unfortunately we reached the end of our time here. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. We covered a lot of ground quickly. How can people get in touch with you, Matt? Just Matt at peakspancapital.com, like spanning mountain peaks. Check out our website. We got a new website. We have a bunch of resources for entrepreneurs up there on our scaling HQ section. Andy did a great masterclass for us and just some really good content. We love just helping entrepreneurs out. So we'd love to help. All right, James. Yeah, James is I-S-I-L-A-Y at Cognizant.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn and yeah, you can contact uh, our main website, just Cognizant.com. Perfect. And Kyle. Kyle at Brickstack.com. Perfect. And LinkedIn, of course. So thank you, everybody. And I look forward to having you all back. We'll do it again. Thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guests, Matt Melamuka, James Isolay, and Kyle Williams for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, The Win Rate Podcast, with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It's called Win Rate Wednesday. Each week on Wednesday, you'll receive an actionable tip that you can put to use in your selling to become a more effective seller. Again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>